Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. It's good to be with you. If you're a guest with us, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Alex just mentioned, we are jumping into the book of Psalms for the summer. We've done this two summers now, the Psalms. There's 150 books. And so it's a great opportunity to jump in for about eight or nine weeks and pick different Psalms and look at different themes and different categories. And if you're not super familiar with the Psalms, some of the main categories are Psalms of wisdom, Psalms of thanksgiving, there are royal Psalms, there are Psalms of lament, there are hymns, there are Psalms of ascent from God's people making journeys. We see all of these different categories that are broken down in the 150 Psalms. And many of these are also written by David. And what I love, I think, most about the Psalms, and I'm sure you do as well, is they're so raw and real and honest. They're not super polished songs and hymns. They're from a deep, intimate place in the writer's heart looking at real things that are going on in his life and in the life of the people around him and the culture and society. And I think they resonate with us on this very deep, deep level. And so as we go through the Psalms this summer, my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us, as we look at different themes and different categories, is that we would see Jesus more clearly. That's always my desire, that we would see Jesus more clearly, especially when it comes to his heart for people, his heart for us, and our heart for him. And so be thinking of that as we walk through this. Now within the categories of the Psalms, we also see different themes broken down. There's a lot of them. Some of these, for instance, God's greatness, how amazing he is, how he's powerful, how he's in control over everything. We see themes of kindness, how God's incredibly kind and gentle. We see themes of sadness, lament, when sin comes in, when circumstances in life happen, we see themes of assurance, assurance in our salvation, assurance of God's goodness. And as we look at today, we even see themes like justice. Now, um, I'm going to let you in on something. When I put together most of the sermons that I preach, at the very beginning, I have this spot, and I just call it building the need, right? Right? Um, It's basically not trying to make the Bible relevant because we don't make the Bible relevant. The Bible is completely relevant at all times because Jesus is relevant. But building this need to say, here's what we're going to be looking at today, this text. Here's some of what it's going to have to say. And really building the need in different areas to, to say we should listen. We shouldn't just tune off. Shouldn't take a nap. Like this is important. Not only is it God's word, but it has something incredible to say to certain areas in our life. But I'll tell you straight up, today the need is already built. When it comes to justice, this need is built and built and built up. In our society, in our culture, it's completely met. The need is met. And so what we see is that there are things going on in our society today. In our culture today, when it comes to justice, there are debates, there are arguments, there's tension over things like racial discrimination, sanctity of life, welfare, health care, the environment, immigration, the definition of marriage, foreign policy, poverty rates, economic issues, and the list can go on and on and on and on. 
And what we also notice when it comes to the issue or when it comes to the topic of justice is that people want so badly to be on the right side of history. What we also know, and so let's just go ahead and say it, is that when it comes to justice, it can get incredibly political. Which side are you on? Are you on this side? Are you on that side? Are you on the good side? Are you on the bad side? Are you on, you know, wh- wh- where do you line up? And it's so easy for that to happen, and it makes sense why that happens, and it can bring up all kinds of emotions within us, some good emotions, some incredibly, wildly inappropriate and sinful emotions that come out. But what I love about Scripture and what I love about the gospel and what I love about God, especially when it comes to politics, is that the Bible rises so far above it, right? It supersedes it. It has something to say about what is good, what is right, what is not, and what God does is he draws a line in the sand on things like justice and says, here's where my heart is and here's where your heart should be. So I'm not necessarily going to say, hey, just put your politics completely to the side. In fact, I think there's a better place to put them. Put them within the lens of Scripture and what God has to say. So before you say, well, I don't know what I'm going to think about this, just, just let's look at what God has to say. Let's be a people in a church that always places our beliefs where we fall within what God has already said and what is still true. Does God have something to say about this? Does God care about this? Absolutely. And so as his people, we should as well. All right, so Psalm chapter 10, go ahead and turn there if you want. It's going to be behind me as well, and we're going to dive right in. The Psalm of David. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. So right off the bat, in the first two verses, David lines it right up, and we see this dilemma, really two dilemmas, that the wicked seem to be winning, getting away with what they're doing, and God seems to be far off. Do you relate with that? You feel that at times? The wickedness seems to be winning, that it seems to be overcoming, that it doesn't seem like it's going to be stopped, or that it's being slowed down, and sometimes it can feel like God is far off. And that's how David starts this very honest prayer that he shares, and it alludes this, it brings up this big question for us, really, that we need to think about. Is a people of God, and also people that live in society and interact with people in society and have sound minds that God has given us, How should we respond to oppression? How should we respond to injustice as the children of God? Not outside of it, but as the children of God, what should be our response? And here's just a hint. There should be a response. There should absolutely be a response to oppression and injustice. No doubt. Now, when you look at the Bible and you notice that David mentioned wickedness, there are two sides to wickedness. There are two parts to this. Now, one of the critiques that the church has received, and and honestly, rightly so in some ways, is that we will stand up for morality, which we do. It's one part of what the Bible talks about as wickedness, morality or immorality, but we will stand up for morality, but we tend to turn a blind eye or go silent when it comes to issues of justice. What the Bible says is the other part of wickedness. And this is not something that we should be found guilty of. 
I just want to say it really clearly that the oppression and dehumanization of image bearers should always create deep concern and indignation in Christ's church. Right? Anybody agree? Amen. All right, cool. I know it's dark outside, but man, let's turn this up a little bit. This is what's happening here with David. This is why he literally spends the first 11 verses, his heart is so wrenched, he's so upset by what he sees going on around him that he spends the first 11 verses just describing this oppressor, the person who would oppress, the person that would, who would take advantage of the disadvantage. So look what he has to say here, starting in verse three. For the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, and for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his nest. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This is the wickedness that David describes. And really, if you want to break it down, you can break it down into about five traits here. The first one, pride. The oppressor is always filled with pride. You see this in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Just for instance, in verse 2, in arrogance, right? The wicked hotly pursue the poor. In verse 3, for the wicked boasts the desire of his soul. Verse um, 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Incredibly proud, believing that nothing bad is going to happen, nothing bad is going to occur. This person has false security. They believe that there are no consequences for their actions. What you also see is that this person carries destructive, demeaning speech that tears down. In verse 3, you see this. He curses and renounces the Lord. In verse 7 as well. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The third trait that you see is greed. Greed. It's amazing what greed can do. Really, this idea of the advantage taking... Um, or people taking advantage of the disadvantage, greed, wanting to get more at all cost. You see that in verse 3 and in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, he lurks that he may seize the poor. He's incredibly greedy. Also violent. Verses 8, 9, and 10, you see that very clearly. I'll just read some of verse 10. It says that the, the helpless are crushed. Also in verse 9, it says that he lurks that he may seize the poor. And, and in verse 8, it says that he murders the innocent Maybe they're outbursts of rage. Somebody's incredibly volatile. And then the big one, uh, number five here, you see throughout this entire description is a rejection of God. This idea that there is no God in verse four, there is no God, he says it right out the bat. In verse 11, God is forgotten. He'll hide his face. He'll never see it. 
This person that tells himself time and time again, there is no God, I'm good. He doesn't see this, he doesn't care about this, there are no consequences. And since there is no God, I can get away with doing whatever I want. It doesn't matter how I treat people, it doesn't matter how I mistreat people. Maybe you were in this place at a time before Jesus got a hold of you. Even when Jesus gets a hold of us, there are sometimes temptations for us to try to get ahead at the cost of other people. And we need to be very cautious of that because it says that the oppressor, the wicked one here, the one that takes advantage, the one that brings about injustice, is one that, that really doesn't care about God, doesn't believe there is a God, doesn't really believe that there's any consequences. And the truth that we see here very clearly is that really what you believe determines how you live. For this person, it's saying there is no God and there are no consequences. For, for Christians, for believers, for those who have a relationship with God, it's us reminding ourselves every day that there is a God and that he's good, and that he loves us, and he wants us to love one another. And so what this leads to, what we see here, is it leads to oppression, it leads to abuse, it it ultimately leads to the dehumanization of people. We see this every day. We see this every day in our society. We see people being taken advantage of. People taking advantage of the disadvantaged is really a, a great way to to look at this, what David has to say here. We see girls and women being trafficked right up the street. We see millions of babies murdered every year, not allowed to take their first breath because it's inconvenience. We see non-criminals treated like criminals simply because of the color of their skin. We see the orphan, the widow, the poor being overlooked, mistreated, discarded as if they are somehow less important than the rest of us or those that have means. We see this all around us. I was watching a show on Thursday night with Laura and uh, this, this guy, this, this African-American restaurant owner, he shared this story of his uh, 14-year-old son who was a great student in school, didn't get in trouble, didn't do anything to anybody. His 14-year-old son, he, he, he sent him to go get on a bus, and at the bus stop, as the dad leaves, he hears shots ring out, and his son is shot 10 times and murdered right there for no reason. We see this all around us, even in the news in the last two weeks. We, we recently saw a guy go into a newspaper company and, and murder five people in cold blood. We see school shootings all around us happen time and time and time again. And we're not going to get into the politics of all this. That's not really the point of this. The point is to say that there is injustice all around us. There's a kid that's literally murdered on video because of mistaken identity. Injustice is all around us. It's everywhere we look, and all of it matters. Let me make this point. I was driving to the office this morning because I forgot something. I was driving, and uh, there were some animals running through the road, and this thought really popped into my mind. Some animals, if they get hit by a car, I really don't care. I'm just being honest. And so if that's not you, throw your stones after We can have a conversation. I get it. I understand. If you're a part of PETA, I apologize. But here's the deal. Some I really don't care, especially crows. I think the more crows you take out, the better. And I know that may offend you. You may love crows, but but that's the deal. Squirrels, a little bit more. I think they're cute. You know, um, cats, a bit more. Um, I know, I know. I'm just being honest, though. But here's the deal. When it comes to, like, a dog, it, like, breaks me if I see a dog that's been hit by a car, all right? Here's the thing about that. That's one thing with animals, and on a serious note, that's a completely another thing when it comes to people. 
There's some people that we can tend to care about more than others, and that is completely abhorrent and wrong. Let me make the point a little bit deeper here. The mistreatment of anyone should weigh on the heart of everyone, especially the children of God who believe that every single person is an image bearer of God. God is not just the God of the United States. He is the God over all nations who created all people. He created the African child being sold into slavery right now that you and I will never meet. He created and loves the immigrant family trying to escape war and save their children and not have a nickel to their name. His blood trickled down the cross for the 12-year-old girl on the other side of the world that's being pushed into an abusive child marriage. He breathed his last breath for the 23 million children in Africa alone who went hungry today and are starving along with the 281 million malnourished people in South Asia. He gave his life for the woman on Aurora up the street right now being pimped out. He loves the babies that are conceived with Down syndrome that parts of our society wants to do away with and relinquish, which is absolutely horrific. The mentally and physically impaired, he loves them. He loves every person, no matter where they come from, no matter where they have come from. He loves them all because he's the God that created them all. Put your politics aside for a minute. Do not turn a blind eye to the oppression of anyone just because they don't live in your hood, just because they don't live in your nation. We can't be a people and a church who gets so passionate about not seeing babies aborted, but doesn't really care about the kids who are mistreated, abused, left on their loan, malnourished, and are dying. We, can't be, we cannot be that kind of people because that is not the heart of God. And that's really what should ring most important to us. When we see injustice, when we see the arguments that are going on, when we see the battles back and forth, we should really push those things aside or push those things down a bit and just say, what does God have to say about this? What's God's heart in all of this? And I guarantee you time and time and time again, and you'll, ne- you'll never be able to find anything other than the fact that God's heart is for people. It's for people, no matter how poor they are, no matter the color of their skin, no matter where they come from, God's heart is for people. And so God's people should have a heart for people, everybody. What we see when we look at society and what David sees when he looks out at his people, poor people, the oppressed, the orphans, the mistreated, is essentially what he's praying. Why he praises is he's saying to God, this is not how it should be. God, why are you letting this happen? And God would be in agreement. This is not how it should be. When we see things like this, we're tempted to go in several different directions here. Some of us are tempted to get on Facebook and start firing. That's all I've got to say about that. That's one temptation. For some of us, vengeance builds up in our heart and we want to see people destroyed. For some of us, we become so overwhelmed by everything happening that we can also become unintentionally apathetic to it. Sort of like standing at the bottom of Rainier, the mountain, and looking up and saying, oh my gosh, that is so tall. I'm not even going to take the first step. There's no way I could make it up there. And so we look around at everything happening. We say, man, there's just too much. What could I do? This is overwhelming. 
But what happens with that is that we can start to minimize a person's pain or we can start to minimize what a person's going through. We can start to minimize a person's struggle or we can start to kind of just look at our struggle and just look at our stuff and we can become so apathetic and that's not what God wants. And he really warns against that. And so look at how David responds here. First, he spends 11 verses describing the wickedness that he sees, describing the oppressors that he sees that are wreaking havoc on the people around him, the disadvantaged. And then here's what he says, starting in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account so you find none. What I love in this section is that David says this a few times, this statement, your hand. David realizes that he alone cannot take care of this, that he alone is not powerful to make everything and sit everything right, that that is in God's power alone, that it is much bigger, that it's only something that he can do, where his intervention is most needed. And so when we see injustice around us, no matter what it looks like, not the last place we should go, but the first place we should go is to God. Just like David does here. He goes to God. He pleads on behalf of others. He shares what's on his heart. He shares what he sees. This is the first place we should go. In Romans 12, 19, it says this, dear friends, never take revenge. I know the temptation can sometimes be to get revenge, to make sure a person gets what they have coming to them. That's what God says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes a bit. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Everything I just mentioned before about people and how they're treated and abused, guess guess who's most angry about that? God. God's far more upset than we are. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Why do we go to God first and foremost? Because he does see. Because he does care. Because these are his kids. Because he's not turning a blind eye. He's not going silent. He takes account. Romans 4.12 makes that really clear. 14.12. It says, each of us, every single person that's ever breathed a breath, every single person that's ever lived, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Everything will be accounted for. Every wicked deed, every abused child, every woman and child trafficked, every person sold as a slave, every widow that's taken advantage of, every unjust murder, all of the racism, every drop of it, all of it will be brought into account. How do we know this to be true? How can we have confidence in this? Because with his very life, Jesus purchased all of the evil of the past, of the present, in the future, ours included. How did Jesus get to the cross? Looking at it just from a very practical standpoint, how did he literally get there? A trial. An unfair, unjust trial. A trial where the scales of justice fell completely on the wrong side. 
where a completely innocent person was found guilty of a crime that they did not commit for blaspheme, for blaspheming God. Jesus is God, and he's found guilty of this. He's sentenced to death. He's led to the cross. He's literally hung on the cross. He literally gives his life. He faces such pain, such anguish for you, for me, for the sin that we brought in, because don't look past this. All of the injustice we see around us, we're actually the ones responsible for it, for our very own sin. That's why we see injustice start so early on after sin enters in with Cain and Abel, the murder of a brother by another brother. This was ours to carry. This was our weight. All of it, all of the evil, all of the abuse, all of the taken advantage, this was all, all ours, and yet Jesus would go through an unjust, cruel trial to hang on a cruel cross, and he would absorb absolutely all of it, every drip of it, everything that has been done, everything that is being done that we see as we flip on the TV, look at the newspapers, jump on our feeds, and everything that will happen. Jesus takes all of it on himself on the cross, and what we see is that the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen in Christ going to the cross, hanging on the cross, breathing his last, also leads to the greatest act of mercy that the world has ever known. The release of rebellious, wicked, prideful, destructive, greedy people from an eternal death penalty that we deserved to being welcomed into his family. What we see on the cross is pretty phenomenal. I don't know if you notice what David said here. He literally asked God to break the arm of the wicked. When you read that verse, I know some of you, you didn't do a fist pump, but you were like, yeah, break, break the arm, right? Is David literally talking about breaking the arm of the wicked? Eh, maybe, I mean, he's pretty upset. But essentially what he's pointing to is he's saying, stop, stop them from doing what they're doing with their hands. Stop this movement from happening. Is that a good thing for us to pray for, for us to go to God with, for us to seek? Absolutely. We should again and again and again and again. But also mercy. And this is the hard one. This is the difficult one to grasp. This relationship between justice and mercy because sometimes we want to play the judge and we want to say, here's what this person should get, no mercy. Here's what this person should get, no mercy. But me, yeah, give me as much mercy as you can. What Jesus brings is these two things intertwined with one another. That God is a God of justice and he's also a God of mercy. And this is hard because to be able to not only seek mercy for the oppressed, but also the oppressor, man, it's a powerful move toward the cross. It's exactly what Jesus did. And it's only through the cross and through the lens of the cross that these two are brought in relationship with one another and that these two even make sense. It's why Proverbs 28.5 says this. It says that evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. How do we understand it completely? Because we view it through the lens of the cross. We understand that we didn't deserve what we got, which was grace. 
We understand that we're not deserving of the love that we're shown by God. We are understanding that we actually deserve the trial to go poorly in our direction. We understand that we're not deserving of new life, that we're definitely not deserving of eternal life. We start to understand more our own circumstance prior to Christ and then the amazing reality of new life when we meet him. I love this quote. This comes from N.T. Wright. It says this. Listen to this. Because David's seeking God here and he's saying, why, why don't you move? Why do, what, what, what's happening here? Jesus doesn't always give us an explanation for every pain and sorrow of the world. But he comes where the pain is most acute and takes it upon himself. Jesus doesn't always explain the suffering, illness, and death of everyone in the world, but he brings healing and hope. He doesn't allow the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar. He allows evil to do its worst to him. He exhausts it, drains its power, and emerges with new life. The hope that we have and the hope that we need to live in and press in to and the hope that we need to share with others is the hope and truth that God will make what is not right, right. That everything that is not right will be made right. We're praying desperately that it's in this life. But if it is not, it will be made right in the next. God is not turning a blind eye. He's not going to sleep on injustice. He sees it all. He cares about it all. And he will make it all right. Which we see brought about through Jesus and the cross. And this is why David ends where he does. Check out these last verses. After saying, look at this evil. God, arise. Do something in your hands. He says this. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You guys remember Braveheart, that movie? Okay, like half of you. Like, I didn't mean half of you. I meant like a half of one person. I was like, "Ah, is that a movie? There's a part in this movie where the army, they want so desperately to move forward, and you see Mel Gibson, he's saying, wait, wait, wait. And sometimes we can say, okay, God, what are you doing? And God's saying, I know what I'm doing. Wait on me. Wait on me. Now, wait doesn't mean go silent and do nothing. It means trust. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust that even though you may not see me working outwardly in every situation, I'm absolutely working. I'm absolutely working, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm in complete control. The Lord is the king forever. He'll do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. God loves to use his church to accomplish this. That's one thing I want us to hear. He loves using his church and using his people to accomplish this. That's why James 1.27 says that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Caring for the orphans and widow in their distress. You don't read anything in there about making sure a person has what they have coming to them. No, no, no. God's got that. He's got it. He's good. But also, we would pray that he changes that person's heart. 
And he gets to their heart, just like he got to our heart. But he's got that. It says that true religion, if you want to practice true religion in the sight of God, care for the orphans, care for the widows, care for the poor, care for the homeless, care for the oppressed, care for the mentally ill, care for everybody around you that you see that doesn't have a voice, can't speak up for themselves, who has been tossed to the side, who has been treated like anything less than human, care for them. Care for the kids who are looking for families. Care for the kids who don't know where their meal's going to come from tomorrow. If you want to practice true religion, do this. Care for those who are in need. Our most important role in justice is not trying to ensure that the oppressor gets what they deserve, but to stand up for and stand in with the disadvantaged. That's our greatest role as Christians. That's our greatest role. That's the greatest thing that we can do as the church. How do we do this? Well, sometimes it's taking opportunities that are out there. Some of our life groups work with different organizations. Sometimes we as a church, we partner with different organizations. There's a lot around Seattle that are looking to stand up for those who don't have a voice, that are looking to intervene, that are looking to make sure those who are poor and don't have means aren't mistreated, aren't abused. Here's just a few. We're connected with Aurora Commons, which we love because that's their heartbeat. To give a space and a place for those who are struggling, some things that they've done that maybe has brought some of these consequences on themselves, but they're no less poor, they're no less important. And so we partner with them and we've got life groups partnered there. With Union Gospel Mission, to care for the needy, to care for the hungry, to care for those who are struggling with drugs, with alcohol, with all kinds of things, um, rest, do we have at least one person in the church that works with, to try to see women who are being sex trafficked saved and brought out of that, work with the YMCA up the street. In fact, there's probably an opportunity today, um, our, our life group, uh, we go up there and we do the teen feed, which is a homeless teen feed once a month. Uh, we're a few short on volunteers. If you want to go there from 12 to uh, 1.30 and you want to serve some food to some homeless kids and have some conversations with them, just see me right after. It's a great opportunity. World Relief, some amazing opportunities within Seattle World Relief. And if you really want to get your hands dirty in this, there's a great opportunity to adopt immigrant families who are not sure what they're doing here, but they know that they are here and they're trying to survive here. And I know that we have a few people in our church that have done that. So if you're interested in that, you can have a conversation with us and we can get you connected with World Relief here in Seattle. But also what I would say is this, just look around. Look around on your street. Look around in your neighborhood. Look around in the city. Look around at the schools that your kids go to. Look around at the grocery store that you shop at. If you look around enough, especially in this city, you will see the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the fatherless. There are opportunities all around us. And instead of saying, well, I can't meet every need, why don't we just start with the person who God places in front of us? What does it look like to show that person care? What does it look like to enter ourselves into their life? What does it look like to actually step up and step in in tangible ways? And the other big one here is prayer. That's what David's doing here. We pray. Prayer is powerful, far more powerful than we often think about or realize, but we pray. We pray on behalf of the ones who are being oppressed, mistreated, misused, abused. We pray that God would bring an end to it. We pray that God would give them comfort, hope, peace, redeem. We pray for the leaders that are in place all around the world, 
that they would put things in place that prevent people from being taken advantage of, that would step in and help the disadvantaged, we pray. We pray for God to intervene like David is doing here. Would you step in? Would you rise? Would you intervene in these people's lives? Would you bring an end to injustice? And we also pray for our enemies. We pray that God would not only break the hand of our enemies, but he would break their heart and bring them to him because that's what he's done with us. We pray. And so heart check. So we get to the end of this, this Psalm 10 on injustice and the cry out for justice and the call for justice. As we wrap this up, maybe think about this. These are some things I've been thinking about this week. Just two things. Where would God have you stand with and stand up for and serve the disadvantaged and mistreated? Maybe you're already doing this. Fantastic. Keep going. Share that opportunity with others. But even in just our day-to-day lives, as we walk around this city, in those moments, in those places. God, where would you have me step in, step up? Where would you have me be a voice for those who don't have one? Where would you have me show someone dignity that hasn't been shown dignity in a long time? And secondly, is there any unrighteous anger or apathy that needs to be confessed and you need Christ to be invited into? Maybe you just become a little bit apathetic or maybe you just become super angry and it's led to some, I don't know, maybe some destroyed relationships, maybe some unnecessary arguments, maybe trying to win fights but lose the war. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, would you let God look at your heart? Would you let him speak in? Would you let him show you where your heart is and where he wants to do some work? And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we'll say this each and every week, he invites you in. No matter what you've done, no matter how unjust you've been to others, no matter what your past looks like, maybe you were someone that was dealt with unjustly, maybe you weren't treated well, maybe you had a tough upbringing, maybe you didn't have a lot, maybe you were the poor, the needy, the fatherless, Jesus wants to give you a home. There's a God who wants to adopt you. He'll take all the messiness of your life, all the rebellion, all the sin, and offer you new life. So maybe that's you today. Here's what I know for sure, especially as we look at this psalm, that God hasn't called us to, silent, to sit silently when we see injustice. He also hasn't called us to simply win arguments. He's called us to love others tangibly as he's loved us. A people who stand for justice and mercy because we see it all through the lens of the cross and the gospel. Because we are a people who have been saved from the justice we deserved by a merciful Savior who is saturating us in his overwhelming grace.